0: Hello and welcome to the Sacred Wisdom Podcast. I am your host, Arabella Thais. Each week, I'll be interviewing an expert in their field, exploring a broad range of topics, from ancient rituals to plant medicine, cosmology to consciousness, and mathematics to mysticism, as well as philosophy, art, and poetry. I invite you to journey with me as we rediscover sacred wisdom and examine cutting-edge research in the hope that we might deepen our connection, not only to the cosmos and the world around us, but to each other and ourselves. Hello. If you are enjoying this podcast, I kindly request that you take a moment of your time to check out my Patreon page and perhaps consider supporting me on this journey with this podcast as I facilitate a discourse into the meaning of the sacred in the attempt to help enrich our understanding of consciousness, to help re-enchant our relationship with the world and the cosmos. There are various options available on the Patreon platform for different levels of contribution and I've added lots of really super cool benefits including a monthly book club so I would love it if you checked it out and let me know your thoughts. Thank you so much ahead of time. Hello and welcome to this episode of the podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to bring to you today Professor Alan Combs also known as Leslie. Professor Combs is a consciousness researcher, a neuropsychologist, and a systems theorist. He's a faculty member at the California Institute of Integral Studies, uh, where he is the director of the Center of Consciousness Studies. Professor Combs is also the author of over 200 articles, chapters, and books on consciousness and the brain, and is the founder and past president of the International Society for Consciousness Studies, as well as the recent recipient of their Lifetime Achievement Award for Advances in Consciousness. He is the editor of journals, Consciousness, Ideas and Research for the 21st Century, and the Journal of Conscious Evolution. Professor Combs' most widely read books include Consciousness Explained, Towards an integral understanding of the multifaceted nature of consciousness, synchronicity through the eyes of science, myth, and the trickster with Mark Holland, and Thomas Berry, Dreamer of the Earth with Irvin Laszlo. Professor Combs and I dive into so many rich topics today around phenomenology, Virginia Woolf, fractals, and the outer reaches of consciousness. It really was uh, an amazing conversation. I enjoyed it so much. Um, I hope you do too. Thank you. Welcome, Professor Combs, to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Great to see you against that lovely (laughs) simulation.
1: (laughs) You've got a nice background. You've got a a room with a blank wall. Well, yeah, it's uh, quite good
0: canvas, isn't it? Yeah, that's good. I, I was do. hoping for something more jungly, something more representative well, of my jungle en
1: Oh, if you go on, on the internet, you can get thousands of really put any picture up there you want. Yeah,
0: I want to put a yantra. Is that a bit there pretentious? You
1: yeah, yeah, We've got a uh, person on our department that has a yantra that pops up when she disappears.
0: Really nice.
1: So, yeah,
0: why don't we start, Lise, by you telling uh the listeners what it is that you do what your area of speciality is and your affiliation with the california institute of integral studies
1: yeah the california institute of integral studies started way back in the 1950s actually Mm -hmm. and was very initially very connected to indian philosophy and uh, spiritual kinds of considerations in general some of the early founders included michael murphy who's also the co-founder of Esalen Institute down in Monterey on the coast of California. And Alan Watts was one mm. of the early deans.
0: <laughs> I did not know uh, that. Who,
1: cool. Yeah, it was, it was a group of uh, folks that met on Saturdays and drank wine and talked about spiritual ideas and philosophy. Mm-hmm. Very influenced by Sri Aurobindo and Aurobindo's yeah. uh Philosophy. Yeah. Since then, it's grown considerably and become much more of a social institution, really a university, and has many departments. The department I'm in is transformative studies. Yeah. We were one of the first programs, I think, ever, at least in the U.S., to be almost entirely online. Mm -hmm. So we've been doing online, yeah, courses for 20 years and fully accredited. I actually live in Ecuador, in in Cuenca, Ecuador, beautiful Mm -hmm. uh, little city and high in the Andes and come back to California occasionally. But all of my classes and activities for CIS are uh, online. Anyway, of course, everybody's online right now. Yeah, so yeah. You, you can't even tell where I am or where anybody is, but it doesn't really matter. Well, exactly. Uh, I might also say that I'm involved with a few people starting a new institute. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That'll uh, initially be centered here in Cuenca, Ecuador, but will be on the web. So I have a much wider presence and it's called the Four Rivers Institute for the yep. four rivers that flow through Cuenca. And the major yep. themes for that will be personal transformation, consciousness studies, ecology yep. and leadership. We're yep. just building a website and we have a number of folks involved already who are world-class people involved mostly right now with ecology but we're going to eventually be offering classes and so on so that's another project I'm working on I'll be
0: retired I was just going to say you're particularly interested in consciousness studies I am am I right I am I am and what you just mentioned about the for, this new institute that you are uh, forming right now, the interrelationship between transformation, consciousness, ecology, I think this is what's so interesting and fascinating yeah. to me, and the idea of integral studies. It is a more holistic approach. Right. It is understanding right. the in- inextricability between all these different components of existence and being. And I feel like we live well, in a world that's very separate, has separated things. And I had initially applied to do a PhD at Cambridge, and I was synthesizing mathematics, physics, philosophy, and poetry, really looking at consciousness. And we can talk about this no, later on if you a person want. Person after my own heart. Uh, so, well, this things. is why I contacted you, and this is why I wanted to talk because these are fundamental issues, and it's not just about no. let's study something esoteric, academic, for the sake of it, so I can get a PhD and then teach other undergrads. It's no, let's look at these fundamental issues, ideas with regards to how they relate to the wider world and how we can transform the collective consciousness in a way that's meaningful for humanity and other animal species and possibly other forms of consciousness in the galaxy. I don't know. I'm I'm a
1: big enthusiast. I don't know. I should just say animal lover. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've always felt very compassionate about animals and they're often left out of the picture. Yes, they are. And, And certainly in the world today, there's a lot of suffering going on. Hmm. Among animals. So I was happy to hear you mention as mm-hmm. one of the one of the elements of an integral worldview.
0: I think it has to oh. be, I think the moment one embarks upon one's journey of awakening, discovery, expansion, the expansion of one's consciousness, you then start to realize all these things that had perhaps not been within one's vision, that had been excluded from one's parameters right. of reality right. and compassion and empathy and understanding. Suddenly stuff like animals, I looked at them and I thought, there's no way that you guys don't have souls. If I have a soul, you have a soul. (laughs) And these moments of connection, and I thought the arrogance and the subjugation and the industrialization Mm -hmm. of life that we've done, it is unacceptable. It's morally reprehensible. And I'm not vegan yet anyway. But certainly, I, am, I look at animals with a newfound humility and respect. Right.
1: I'm a great believer that virtually all animals are conscious to some degree or other. Mm-hmm. Self-consciousness is uh, something relatively new, I think, in the evolutionary history, although Probably uh, a number of non-human animals have it. Some of the yeah. higher primates, certainly some of the cetaceans, like
0: oh, you mean dolphins,
1: whales, dolphins, yeah, orcas, and yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, they're incredibly intelligent. They even pass the mirror test. Are you familiar with the mirror yeah. test when
0: you they recognize themselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There are even some birds that can do that now. The African yeah. grey parrot, for example. Yeah, there's somebody home.
0: Let me ask you this question: What is consciousness?
1: That's the big question. That's a, one of those questions. What's beauty, <laughs> uh-huh. or what's excellence? We all recognize it when we see it, but we don't. When you ask people to really define it, in fact, there's a joke in the consciousness studies community about this that the the big conference about uh, the nature of consciousness, yeah. And uh, so they thought before we get started, we should define consciousness. And then they took the whole week trying to do that and <laughs> never got any, but it consciousness has something to do with awareness, uh, sense of being, being alive, sense of being here now, in fact. One of the more common definitions of consciousness, and and one I particularly like myself, and pretty widely used by philosophers, is uh, what it is like, what it is like to be here now, talking to each other, what it is like to eat a
0: pear. So experience... The quality oh, of experience. I said, that's another
1: that's another word for consciousness, yes. Uh-huh. And in fact, in most of my own writing, I prefer to use the word experience. Uh, William James, over 100 years ago, gave a whole long talk in France about how he was done with the word consciousness. And a lot of people misunderstood him. But when you talk about consciousness, people tend to reify it or Make it into an object, or think about it like a noun, like something is there. Mm -hmm. You get your hands on it. So he he started to use the word experience, and I think experience is a a better word. But yeah, what is there's a famous, which no doubt you've heard of if not read, there's a famous paper decades back called "What is it like to be a bat?" (laughs) To be a bat, Thomas Nagel.
0: I lived with How some bats know. in my last house. There was a there was a flock or a, a colony of bats. Five or bats. Heard of what? <laughs> I don't know. I, I was looking up the. I love looking at the collective nouns for animals. They're always so intriguing. Anyway, I lived with them. They lived in my bedroom, and I would wake up to their kind of clicking noises. I studied literature at university, but I lived with philosophers, so I was aware of that article. But I was ruminating heavily on it, just watching their activity and their behaviour. Of what is it like to be a, to be a bat? Because they're weirdly be familiar and sweet yeah. because they're mammals, but yet they're so foreign.
1: Yeah, and there's most of them are, or many of them are so social. One often wonder almost wonders if there's a kind of group mind connection mm, or something.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: depends With bats, on the kind of bat. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Some birds, too, fly in flocks that are so well co- coordinated. Yeah.
0: There's got you to know, be... know, my
1: friend uh, Rupert Sheldrake thinks there's a kind of morphic, morphic field resonance. that connects them all together, yeah.
0: So, so Rupert and I were in dialogue when I had this intended PhD at Cambridge. I wanted to apply morphic resonance looking at T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. <laughs> and actually... <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, but I was interested also the way that landscape holds memory and how... Because in T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, there's one excerpt of the poem where he starts speaking in, or writing in Middle English... And he's speaking about this, a couple dancing around a fire. And it's all in Middle English, this idea of when human behavior or a deep emotion is written on a landscape, can the landscape be a kind of palimpsest? Can, you know, so when we go to Stonehenge, the Avebury Stones, I don't know, the Mayan temples or the whatever, what is it about yeah. sacred places and spaces that we, do we are we feeling a kind of memory
1: I have been to very few of them because they're not honored, uh, or in the past they have been honored in, in the new world the way they have in the old world. But I used to go to a big uh, museum uh, in Kansas City. That's a whole other story, but a medieval chapel had been built stone by stone, carried over from England or Germany and built in the middle of this uh, Museum in downtown Kansas City. And I swear if you walked into it, it just there was a kind of resonance there. And mm-hmm. I've been in Gothic cathedrals that they have that too. In fact I was in Notre Dame a few years ago, fortunately, I guess.
0: Before the fire uh, and yeah. people
1: were practicing singing. And it was resonating through the whole place, and yeah, yeah, it fascinates me. There seem to be, of course, there are sacred places all around the world honored by traditional peoples, but some of these, uh, at least for a Westerner like myself, uh, some of these chapels and cathedrals and holy places just have a resonance,
0: and they seem to be a kind of repository. Almost like they absorb the energy, and it could be to do with. I think it's multifarious factors. Number one, the actual location—you have ley lines, certain energetic uh, places yeah. or points. And in Costa Rica, for instance, where I live right now, it's not so much about human history, but the actual resonance of Mother Earth. And there's various kind of energy mm. points here. But similarly yeah. in England, that I felt the same with ley lines. And you know, you go somewhere like Glastonbury Tour, you really feel it. But on top of that, when you have a building that's very old and somewhere like Westminster Cathedral, if you go in the intention, right. the prayer, the, the human uh, consciousness that has been emitted, transmitted and written, inscribed upon that place. It's almost like the materials, the stones have absorbed some of that consciousness. Yeah. Is that possible? Yeah. What do you think?
1: I don't know, but I know what you're talking about and it is a kind of a, a real feeling Mm. it's Rupert's idea of morphic residence may have some some relevance here it, it seems like when people are are in a particular place as well for a long time and some of these old castles and buildings in in the UK and in, in Europe are quite old have been inhabited by various people over mm. long periods of time there may be a kind of impression or kind of residence. michael murphy and his wife the co-founder of eslin institute used to go to scotland and play golf <laughs> mm-hmm. the old uh, the old golf game and he, he had some strange experiences in one of the old castles just mm-hmm. sleeping there it was like it was haunted there were yeah you know, characters moving about there's a uh, well-known British parapsychologist from over a hundred years ago, Myers, who wrote about this kind of thing, and he well he had it, invented a number of words like telepathy is one of his words. Uh huh. Um, that when people <clears throat> inhabit a place for long enough, they, there's a sort of subtle energy or subtle impression that's left, so that. Often these are uh, mistaken for ghosts, seems to be a ghost, but he doesn't think they're really ghosts. He doesn't think there's anybody really there, but it's more of a subtle energy. Like a residue. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly right. Maybe uh, these places that have been holy places for so long that there's a certain human residue there. Mm. There's also the possibility, if you allow reincarnation as a possibility, but you've been there before. I've been to places in Scotland. That uh-huh. just, I know I've been there before. <laughs> what, are your th-
0: what, are your, what are your thoughts on reincarnation and past lives? Because a big intention I have with this podcast is to disseminate knowledge, ideas, information, not in, in a way that's stipulating a direct truth, but just to expand people's awareness, just to raise ideas, because I didn't used to believe in past lives. And I had a spiritual, right. I had a spiritual awakening of gargantuan proportions three oh years my. ago. And uh, Kundalini awakening and this notion, Mm. I had this realization that this is not my first rodeo. This is not my first time on this earth. And I suddenly realized, oh my God, life is so much more profound and meaningful and rich and textured than I could possibly have imagined. So I'd love to hear someone yeah. especially with the academic substance that you do have and the expertise you do have with consciousness, what are your thoughts on reincarnation?
1: There yeah, I have several thoughts. One I should mention that most of my colleagues are very skeptical. Secondly, I'll say that like flying saucers, another weird topic. There's so much evidence in favor of reincarnation that you have to just turn a blind eye to it because it's out there. Look at this kid that lives in Idaho, Indiana. Anyway, it was in the newspapers about a year ago. He thinks he's, uh, he thinks he was, lived a past life as a, This great baseball player, what was his name? And There's a disease named for him because he gradually became paralyzed. Okay. Very, very great baseball player from the 40s. It'll come to me. He's a very famous guy, but I have a poor memory if I don't think about the topic for a while, Uh, especially for names. But anyway, this kid, the family is not into baseball. This kid's all about baseball. They had to give him, get him a uniform. And he, (laughs) he talks about his friends. He talks about the Babe Ruth. He sent him a picture of Babe Ruth. He said, oh, he wasn't very nice to me. And true enough, Babe Ruth didn't like this guy. Yeah, no, he just, he's got the whole story. Whenever he looked at pictures from the, the team, he could name everybody. There's all sorts of stories like that. Mm. And in these stories in India of kids that remember living at some other village down the road, and they buried some money in the backyard before they died. And they go down there and find it. In my case, I haven't had any dramatic experiences like that, but I have had. A uh, sense of being places in the past. And I've had two friends, that, that, three friends that play may remember me. One of them is a the Taoist master, and he said, Oh, didn't I tell you? I've seen you as the Scottish Lord in furs and angry and pounding on the table. I don't know what you were angry about. Big oak table. And this other friend down at the other end of the table, because we were all drinking wine, he says, I had a dream of that. I remember, that I saw you in that dream. So I've had two people who claim they remember me as an old Scottish lord with a bow. I could dinner. see that.
0: I could totally see that
1: <laughs> vibe. you need to change the claim- zoom
0: background to a kind of a glen.
1: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and I have another friend who just—he uh, claims he remembers uh, being a Viking together and us going across the North Sea. And if wow. you look at his picture online, he, if anybody ever looked like a Viking, it's him. That, the funny thing is, it all feels right. So I, yeah, I believe your reincarnation.
0: I, I was doing a little bit of looking into your work and some of your research and stuff. From what I understand, you, as am I, are interested in the kind of outer reaches of experience, of consciousness. So I was right. always very fascinated with like liminal realms, and those kind of glitches, if you will. So things like deja yeah. vu, experiences of the uncanny, lucid dreaming, hypnagogic states. Or just yeah. and as a writer, because I'm a writer, that's what I identify with first and foremost, and a literary person. I do believe it's a task of a writer to encapsulate or capture as best as possible those moments of consciousness which are beyond the realm of the quotidian. Virginia Woolf wrote about this. She said, In moments of being... Right? Beyond the kind of. She's my heroine. She has saved my life in moments of of despair and existential anguish. I looked to her and I said, You, of all people I've encountered in my life, you understand what it is to see the world the way I do. And the words that she used and the texture of her words and the cadence and the rhythm.
1: What's the book she wrote? The novel or story she wrote? She's got four characters.
0: The Waves.
1: Yes, and they all seem to be different aspects of herself.
0: I think it's probably The Waves. That's her kind of magnus opus. Yeah, no, it is The
1: Waves. It's really amazing. I had a student a few years ago who she and I were going to write a book together about Virginia Woolf and some of the other writers uh, in England and in the U.S., mostly back more like 100 years ago in the U.S., but it hasn't materialized, but she encouraged me to read The Waves and I did I was very impressed
0: it is an event had
1: such a genius for uh, writing about her inner life I think
0: Uh, absolutely well about consciousness and she was the one who said to come to consciousness if you want to describe someone I can say so and so was born in 1925 they lived here they went to this but what does that really tell you about the substance of that person and from to the lighthouse which is probably my favorite
1: Mm. Text of
0: hers. But she speaks about Mrs. Ramsay, who's this kind of very enigmatic, elusive figure based on her mother. And she speaks about how Mrs. Ramsay would go into this wedge of darkness. And it's her way of trying to describe the experience of consciousness when you recede into the depths of your own being. And how basically it's if she envisaged it like a pyramid or a cone or a triangle, whereby the apex of the triangle is what everyone else sees us by, the things we say and the things we do, and yet there is this right, vast yeah. terrain that goes deep within, and even we don't really know the substance of our own consciousness. This lady <laughs> did deeper phenomenology than this or Heidegger did. It really
1: into herself, and I haven't read The light. so I'll go get it now.
0: Please read it. You could read it in a few days. It's short.
1: I like to read these things a sentence or two at a time and sit with them. Mm. Yeah, mm-hmm. sounds wonderful. Geez, I was going to go somewhere, but now I'm thinking about Virginia Woolf.
0: Well, what's I think something else... Oh,
1: I'll tell you real- what I was going to say. You know, you please. Since you're interested in these alternative and liminal states, I wonder if you're familiar with the uh, mostly Sufi idea of the imaginal world?
0: No, please. It sounds fascinating. First,
1: before I forget, I'll say the best information about the imaginal reality is a... French esotericist writer James Corbin was a Catholic but he shared new Sufi mysticism and the this came out of the Moor, the Moorish philosophy in southern Spain and the imaginal realm is somewhere between waking and dreaming but it's treated as a real realm that one can go to and move around And it's usually either mistaken for or referred to as lucid dreaming but mm. it's not really lucid dreaming if you've ever had an experience in the imaginal realm it's not a dream it's I'm you're really sure. there
0: i'm fairly it's sure it's really a
1: different place yeah you might explore that the only problem i have with it is it's very hard to get there i i was not a trained sufi <laughs> i've only had a few experiences that i thought
0: were i was in the imaginal realm but i do think there's ways we can cultivate these experiences though Oh, yeah, definitely. But You
1: should start doing it before you're 75 years old or whatever it is. But, yeah, sure you can. The thing is, the Sufis had mm -mm. methods for doing this that I don't really know.
0: What, you mean like the whirling dervish kind of... Style. I think it's
1: more like meditative sorts of practices, probably more related to the Tibetan Dzogchen dream yoga traditions. Oh, yeah. There's some of them in Taoism as well, in which people go into the dream state consciously and uh, do stuff there, meditate. or And Taoists even have this practice of going, uh, dreaming, go to sleep, start dreaming, cultivate a dream.
0: Dream yoga. And then
1: go to sleep dream yoga yeah and then go to sleep in the dream <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> i can't sorry yeah, so, I'm, that, that, that's like a layer within a layer that's like inception
1: but i know the you know, there's still the practice of uh, tibetan dream yoga is still very much alive Zogchen.
0: Do you think when it, we dream, are we just yeah. going within our own heads to the subconscious? Or do you think there's some sort of traveling? Because this is the fundamental thing, isn't it, about consciousness. Is everything happening within? Yeah. Or is there actually consciousness happening without, i.e. beyond the skull in realm, etheric realms?
1: Yeah, is- I never did think consciousness was constrained to the head. But I don't right now. <laughs> uh, I think of the brain as more like a transmitter, receiver, something like that. I'm a big fan of, I think, a fan of R.A. Bergson, the French philosopher. Yeah, yeah. Berson, William James, they talked about this problem a lot, is consciousness actually you know, in the brain or is the brain a kind of transceiver. And I think of it much more as a kind of transceiver because people have out-of-the-body experiences that are so real Yeah. Near death experiences. And these have been researched so much. And it's pretty clear people can have vivid experiences over extended periods of time in graphic detail when the brain's just shut
0: down. Yeah,
1: and they're actually clinically dead.
0: Bruce Grayson, I'm interviewing him next week. But he was very much kind of materialist with regard to his paradigm. But he just collected so much data, and there was so much evidence with his patients having near-death experiences, reporting conversations, details—literally impossible, like physically intellectually impossible for them to have obtained this data, this information, unless they had their soul or their consciousness have somehow right. um, gone outside of their body, basically. It's as simple as that. And over yes. 30 years procured all this data.
1: Or they have some experience like this themselves. This guy, what's his name? I see I'm bad with names. It's a uh, kind of uh, dyslexic trait of mine. No mind. problem, I have no to problem. About it. But he wrote Can't a have very it famous book, I'm sure you've heard of it, called Proof of Heaven. I have not heard of it. Oh, it was very popular. in Proof of Heaven. He was almost clinically dead for days and days. And then he came back and he had this long lasting, vivid experience about being in another world. Two or three more books since then. Well, I had an opportunity to hear him talk a few years ago. I was actually in Italy with a whole collection of people who had done this kind of work. And I thought, oh, no, another physician that's going to tell us about everything because I used to get so disgusted with this from MDs and businessmen who thought they knew it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to listen to this guy. And I went, and I was impressed. He is smart. He's done his research. He wrote a great book. He's written two or three more now. He's done a whole history of reports of uh, near-death experiences. He's a very bright man and wrote a very good book, He's in several good books. So the the one that was so popular in the US was called Proof of Heaven. But you you have an experience like that. Yeah. (laughs) You start to to question whether you're all locked up in your brain or not. Right. uh, Right. So many of those.
0: Often these things do come through experience, don't they? Because if you're programmed to believe a certain way, if science teaches you one thing, you're taught something in school, it does take a real direct experience to start breaking down those walls. That's how yeah. it was for me anyway. And once you've yeah. seen, you can't unsee. It's like taking the red pill in the matrix. You can't, you can't unsee it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Red
1: pill, yeah, that's right. But there are more and more people in the U.S., mostly on the West Coast and in England, who are really organizing around and creating a, what they call post-materialist science. Post-materialist, yeah. You may be familiar with a group in England that's been around quite a while, and they're quite solid. But The Scientific and Medical network. Okay.
0: No, I need to be familiar
1: there. Well, look them <laughs> up. The Scientific and Medical Network, they're made up of doctors, scientists, and a lot of people like myself. Yeah. Uh, they've been around for a lot of years. In fact, they gave me a uh, uh, Book of the Year award years ago for my book, The Radiance of Being, oh. which I'm very proud of, mainly because I shared the Book of the Year award with Roger Penrose. Who oh, wow. I've been mm-hmm. But anyway, the Scientific and Medical Network has brought together a lot of people around post-materialist science. Mm. They also have a sort of subgroup called the Galileo Commission Mm -hmm. that I belong to. David Lorimer, who was one of the founders and people at Findhorn years ago was very associated with them. But they pull in a lot of people. They're real bright people like Rupert Sheldrick and Dean Radin. Yeah, had Dean on you know, last right? week, actually. Yeah, all right. <laughs> he's very well. Yeah, I know Dean. He's, uh, I love Dean. He's funny, you know. If you can get him to play, look at uh, banjo, you know, he likes to play. Uh, <laughs> really? Yeah, he likes to play Appalachian banjo music and tell jokes. So that's a different side of Dean Gray. He's uh, he's uh, really interested in yeah. post-materialist sciences. yeah. Yep. His more recent book called "True Magic" or something like real that. Real magic, real magic. Yeah, it's filled with really weird stuff. We chaired notes because I'd written a book on synchronicity years ago. Yeah, and he's got a lot of things about synchronicity in that book. So there's really a movement among um, a lot of scientists to, so to move. Pa- in would the you say it's
0: a paradigm of- shift? A paradigm shift is occurring.
1: Yes, I think it's definitely occurring. It's already occurring. It may have already occurred. And then I get a kick out of all these uh, a really serious reductionist scientists who sometime, were around 60 years of age suddenly become spiritual. <laughs> and they start talking about these things.
0: Well, that's interesting. Well, it's never too late, is it?
1: No, it, it, it never is too late. And I'm um, trying to think of... Uh, Chris, Christoph Koch, I think it is. As I said, I'm bad with names, but he's one of the more prominent brain scientists in the world. Worked at Caltech. I guess he's still at Caltech. And he's recently written a book like Confessions of a, a Previous Materialist. But it does
0: feel like that. It's like you become a recovering materialist. It's almost like we need a 12-step yeah, program well, for people most to kind recent of... Book,
1: <laughs> yeah, his most recent book is about consciousness. I could send you something, an article by him, for example, about his consciousness everywhere. At the same time, I'm getting ready to write an article on... Uh, Development, psychological, spiritual, um, tra- consciousness yeah,
0: development.
1: Yeah, yep, yep. And I'm relying a lot on uh, on Harvard, the developmental psychologist, Robert Keegan. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a number of YouTube talks about him on the web. You can find them easily. But according to Keegan, you have to be at least at midlife to get to uh, – this sort of more advanced uh, worldview. That's putting human
0: time, but you're putting human time and human years on something which is so fundamentally outside of space and time.
1: Yeah, I agree with you having taught for years and years at uh, CIIS and Saybrook Institute that I've met a lot of young people who are very far along in their uh, development. But anyway, my point is that it's about, in Keegan's work... He never interviewed anyone at the highest stages of development who hadn't gotten to midlife. Well, I don't necessarily agree with that as a the theoretical statement, but it fits with this fact that these reductionistic scientists, once they get to about, about midlife, they start getting more open minded and more spiritual. Yeah, well, it's one of the characteristics is of one of the higher stages. Yeah. You know.
0: But I do think it's actually very interesting, this interrelationship between personal transformation, which you've alluded to, and also with your Jungian kind of background, and then consciousness as a wider concept. Because my personal theory, and when I say personal theory, I'm sure there's other people who share it. It's just something I've thought about personally, is that the trajectory of evolution is exponential. Hence why when, you know, Life emerged. It took however many, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of years for it to develop and become more complex. Then you had the Cambrian explosion and then blah, blah, blah. And you look at the last hundred years, how far we've come. Look at the last 10 years, the yes. last five years. It's exponential. The evolution of consciousness. So I do feel like we are moving into this. We are rapidly moving towards this state of supercoherence. And that's why people are waking up left, right and center. And there's this kind of increasing rapidity at which it's happening. And I feel like for us, for con- in terms of the evolution of consciousness, which re- is necessarily moving towards a state of greater unity and cohesion and collaboration and creativity, it requires people to transform themselves individually to have this kind of awakening and personal, this personal shift. Mm. Right? Yeah. So this individual, they're kind of micro related to the macro. What's going on a universal level is also happening on this very individual level level. What are your thoughts on that? I'm totally interested.
1: (laughs) Uh, For one thing, to back up on that a little bit, there hasn't been a lot of evolution taking place physically in the last few thousand years, but things seem to be happening on the subjective level very quickly. And one of the things I'm totally interested in, I was actually thinking about trying to write a book about it. Well, I thought it was done writing books, but uh, <laughs> it's this saying you're calling it coherency, uh, coherent uh, collective consciousness. I'm calling it inner subjectivity. It seems like it's breaking out different places. It's an interesting idea. Uh, an old friend of mine, Andrew Cohen, the guru... Uh, he's been, you know, he's, he has a very controversial past. I won't go into that, but he's a friend of mine. I'm not a student, I'm not a devotee, but he's a very bright guy. And I've been doing interviews with him from, he's in India right now. In fact, he has a book ready to publish if we can find a publisher that's very good about his own experiences as a guru and a lot of trials he's been through. But anyway, one of the things he was working with in his community, it all fell apart a few years ago, and now it's, it's pulling back. But groups of people working together would uh, make breakthroughs into a real kind of collective consciousness. And that uh, was like a higher state of intelligence. So there would mm. be like 10 or 15 people that would suddenly, it would break through into a almost like a field effect. And, inner sub- and subjectivity would collapse across that so that everyone was sharing a common kind of intersubjectivity.
0: What do you mean by intersubjectivity? You mean a shared lens of perception? It's
1: really deeper than that. It's a sense of being. Mm. And uh, I've experienced this as a Quaker. My background is in, as a uh, Quaker in the U.S. And it's, it's, the British, too. Every once in a while is extremely rare during a, what they call a Quaker meeting. And these are silent meetings, really periods of contemplation. There would be a sense of, all of a sudden, we unity. <clears> that everyone in the room is, there's a, it's very hard to explain. But mm. there's a sense of unity, there's a sense of uh, uh, collective consciousness. This doesn't mean that you don't have your own thoughts and stuff. It just means that really deep down, you feel at one with the group. You're just part of it. You're just connected.
0: like Almost like you're all on the same frequency, like you're all vibrating yes. at the same frequency.
1: Yeah. Nobody can really explain it, but I've only experienced this once or twice. But at the end of the meeting, people just look at each other and say, what just happened? It's a very real experience. And that was the sort of thing Andrew Cohen and his devotees were cultivating, actually, and they've uh, they've gotten to the point where they really can work towards that. Uh, you know, there are these sorts of things going on, like I was talking to somebody at the TM University recently, Orrin Johnson. Is that his name? Orrin Johnson. You know, this guy's done a lot of research over the years with TM meditation. And yeah. They did some very good research where they got large numbers of people doing meditation at the same time, and it really affected the crime rate in the local city. Now, that's not quite the same as consciousness, but yeah, I'm very interested in whether this this movement is taking place, whether this is something that we might look to as a future evolution of human consciousness.
0: Do you have any? This might sound a bit like a non sequitur, but there is a kind of relation to what we were discussing earlier. Is what are your thoughts on the relationship between fractals and, no. consci- and consciousness, if well, at all?
1: Yeah, I've written a lot about fractals, and have my, you? I really started my career out as a. Uh, oh, really? One of the founders of the Society for Chaos Theory and Psychology. <clears throat> And we just had a book come out uh, using fractals uh, as a kind of paradigm uh, model for a lot of psychology. Yeah, the book is authored by a dear friend of mine, Terry, T-E-R-Y, Marks Tarlow, M-A-R-K-S-Tarlow, and it's essays about uh, psychology and consciousness. In the one I was involved with, the author, the First author is a lady called Sally Wilcox, who was a doctoral student of mine, but it's on fractals and consciousness and uh, borders of consciousness. Mm. It's a fairly long technical discussion, and Sally knows more about it than I do. I'm fascinated by fractals, but I don't think in terms of fractals much. I feel like often chaos theory and fractals are overused. But I don't know, this chapter that she essentially wrote, and I essentially edited, a number of people said, oh, that was so inspiring, and it answered so many deep questions for me. And I don't know what to say about that. (laughs) I I didn't have that sense at all writing it. But then you never know. I wrote this book on synchronicity almost 30 years ago. Wow. And people are still telling me that it changed their lives. Mm. And It wasn't the book written to change anybody's life. It was just it depends on the questions people have. Yeah. But, yeah, I think fractals make a powerful metaphor for some aspects of consciousness.
0: Okay, so you're looking at it more mm. metaphorically.
1: Yeah, I think they're a mathematical construction. But the, the thing we wrote about was mostly about boundaries,
0: Okay.
1: The thing about a fractal boundary, like the famous case of the shore, how long is the shoreline of Great Britain? You probably know that one. No. Nope. Oh, Mandelbrot's first paper was yep. titled like something like "How Long of Great Britain?" And okay, so you take a satellite photograph of Great Britain and then map the distance of the shoreline, and then you make photographs from an airplane. And then you make photographs from 100 feet above the surface. And the further down you get, the more complex the shoreline gets, until you get right down to sand and rocks and stuff. And the finer the scale, the longer the shoreline, don't you see? So that's a fractal notion that the shoreline's infinitely long. Yeah. If your scale is is small enough. Yeah. Fractors are like that. You look at a pattern. It seems to have a smooth surface, but then when you can go in, you can infinitely dive into it. And it keeps self-replicating. It self-replicates, but it also is, uh, if it's uh, a real fractal, it's infinitely large in a sense as you slide down the scale. Yeah, And so there are some properties about consciousness Especially as you move into uh, altered states, yeah. So where's the boundary? It's like <laughs> yeah. it's like a fractal. The further you get, the bigger the boundary gets. So you may feel like you're in that room or I'm in this room and uh, my awareness is limited. If we got in a flotation tank, especially with a little LSD or something.
0: Oh, my God.
1: It's like the boundaries are like fractal boundaries that just go out and out. That's an
0: interesting way of looking at it. I, I mentioned it because this was kind of the kernel, I think, of my intended PhD thesis. I was interested in the relationship between fractals, consciousness, and certain kinds of poetry, and whether we could apply mathematical algorithms to literature to see if yeah. whether literature, certain, not all literature, because not all literature is born the same, could tell us more about consciousness than, than science can currently, because it can't. Hence why it's still called the, the hard problem. That's why we're up against a wall with it, to a certain right. degree. And um, well, I'm uh, Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that, did you know that they recently, about 10 years ago, applied al- algorithms to some of the most stream-of-consciousness works, modernist works like James Joyce's Ulysses, Finnegan's Wake, Virginia Woolf's The Waves, Samuel Beckett, and they found some of the most complex fractal and multifractal patterns in those works. In terms uh, of the, the placement of the letters within the words, within the sentences, within the paragraphs, within the... Oh, uh, yes, I remember. I've looked up some of that. I've this cascading pattern. And my argument was, isn't it interesting that a lot of these people, number one, they were writing to a rhythm. They were also developing themselves as channels. A lot of these people like Rilke or whatever, they spoke often yeah. spoke about receiving downloads, getting kind of information from other sources. They were like a channel. So I was saying, isn't it interesting that when we look at the spiral of a seashell or the spiral of the Milky Way galaxy we live right. in, it's the same logarithmic geometry that we then see in these patterns, you know, in the, well, the same patterns we see. in if you have any
1: resources in... about that, I could look up and read or see, I'd love, I would love for you to share. I
0: I have 60,000 words of research. I spent a year in the British library doing research, hoping to do this PhD, which I now want to do at the California Institute. It was called the poetic,
1: poetic of
0: (laughs) of the origin of being.
1: I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. I actually, I'm an editor as well. I have a couple of of, uh, journals myself that we might want to talk. Okay. Yeah, please, I'm serious.
0: Yeah, so am I. I gave a
1: paper, paper actually, on uh, the practical nature of uh, platonic dialogues. I was talking about temporal patterns. Plato will go on about something very serious, and then he'll stop and he'll say, your wife is a pig. (laughs) And suddenly there's this crazy thing that goes on. And then they get back to talking about the nature of reality. Right. There's these abrupt, and if you listen to conversation, it's like that. It? Weird temporal patterns. But I'm also interested to mention, because you're talking about poetry. Yeah. That, you know, one of the measures of complexity that's used very commonly, and it's easy to use, is what's called the fractal dimension. Mm-hmm. And so that's how complex it is. That's because to break Great Britain. Is infinitely long if you get down close enough because of its fractal dimensionality. So people have analyzed Jackson Pollock's
0: yeah, payment, yes, yes, yes,
1: and they have a very narrow bandwidth to fractal dimensionality mathematically. You can't just throw paint on a canvas and make a shot from Pollock. Right. Somehow he knew the degree of complexity. wasn't thinking about it consciously, but it was
0: intuitively. Right. That's the point. And it was coming through a him.
1: Narrow da- bandwidth to make the real
0: thing so that it worked. The same thing though as Joyce, Beckett, Woolf—they weren't yeah, a, so doing this consciously. Really it was yeah. coming through them. And Virginia Woolf said, "She said I wrote the waves to a rhythm." She listened to Beethoven's music and wrote it to a rhythm. Look at nature. Well, Everything is rhythmic. another
1: one we should talk about. I read it really <laughs> years ago. And I have to tell you this because you've got such a broad knowledge, of cultural knowledge, that you might be able to help me find it again or have thoughts about it. This is a paper I read years ago and never been able to find again. And what this person was doing was talking about the chakra system. Yeah. And he was going through Beethoven chakra by chakra
0: fascinating
1: so the first symphony is early is about power and then it becomes more and more spiritual to the last the last symphony is this beautiful spiritual symphony and then the late quartets even more abstract so it was like Beethoven was going up through the chakras or some kind of Scale, but I've never been able to track that again, and I don't know Beethoven well enough to really put it together myself. Well, that's fascinating.
0: I'll have to do. I can do some research and try and track that down because I'd love to read that article. That's fascinating. So this was
1: like thirty years ago. I think it was in a journal called Revision, but I haven't been able to find the actual article again. But Beethoven's late quartets were so abstract.
0: Well, in, been indeed, deaf for
1: years. Hence the that, four
0: quartets. It's not called that for no reason. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm going to ask you one final question. We've covered a lot. Since this podcast is called Sacred Wisdom, and I'm especially interested in the meaning of the sacred and facilitating a discourse around that, what does the sacred mean to you?
1: It means some sense of spiritual, or whatever is spiritual, or elevated, or expanded. It's another one of those words that I think you can talk about but you can't define. I'm in my own spiritual life, either beyond, worn out with, or no longer interested in gods and goddesses and things that can be named. Yeah. Right, <laughs> uh, right. But but if you've had a kundalini experience that you tap into something that you can only say is sacred and uh So it's a different kind of consciousness. It's an awareness. It's a kind of elevated. They're all metaphors, of course. Waking up, elevated, finding your true self. We could go on. My dear friend who's now just passed away, Ralph Metzner, wrote a whole book on these kinds of metaphors for or images for spiritual uh, awakening. The only one I don't like is the word enlightenment, which I Mm. understand is not a good word. I know I can talk about that, but I personally think the different traditions have their own notions of the highest states. Satori, for example, Samadhi. And they're all very real and they're all closely related, but I don't think they're all the
0: same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Thank you so much. That was a joy and an honour and a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. I love to speak with. Well, you. I just
1: really enjoyed it a lot, I and mean, if you want to have a part two sometime, or keep I would love that whatever.
0: absolutely, one hundred percent. And we'll keep that. this line of communication open. I think we have lots more to share. God bless
1: you. I say that all the time now. It just comes out of my mouth. I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take a blessing from yeah, I mean, giving one. Why not?
0: Better, 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 yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, let's be friends. Let's keep in touch. I would love that. Thank you for listening to the show. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Please head to the Sacred Wisdom podcast page on Facebook for more resources and further reading on everything discussed. If you're interested in finding out more about me and my journey, please see my Instagram handle at Arabella underscore Thais or head to my website www.arabellatais.com where you can read my collected essays, articles and poetry. If you wish to contact me, there's a contact form on there, so I recommend using that. If you are enjoying the podcast thus far, I have two requests. Firstly, that you subscribe to the podcast. That way you won't miss out on any content. My second request is that you rate and review the show, as this will be incredibly helpful to me in getting the podcast noticed and therefore disseminating the content. Thank you so much ahead of time. I promise to read each and every single one. Okay, have a great week and I hope to see you next time on the Sacred Wisdom Podcast.